what is written and how do you read it? Imagine a large warehouse that is filled with people, thousands of people. They live here. They were born here. They've never left it. It has everything they need. All of their friends, their work, industry, heroes, entertainment, all inside the warehouse. They have no reason to leave. It has no doors, but it has windows. They are covered with grime, years of neglect and abuse. One day, a child grabs a chair, drags it over to the window, takes a piece of his shirt, wipes it off, and looks out, and he sees people standing in the street. He is amazed. He's never seen this before. It occurs to the child that there are people out there just like there are people in here. And then he sees something else. He sees a man standing on the street pointing upward. He's smiling. Four or five other people come next to him and they stand and start pointing up and smiling. So the child in the warehouse looks up and all he sees is a tin roof. He wonders, why are people on the street so interested in the tin roof? Till it occurs to him, maybe they're not looking at a tin roof. Maybe there is something else over their head. Well, there is. It's a wide open blue sky with an airplane flying across it and birds and clouds tumbling. Suddenly the child hears a voice from someone in the warehouse. Get off that chair. Get back here and clean up this mess. <laughs> so he climbs down. He drags the chair back to where it was. And he tells the people around him what he has seen. And the other children just smile, but say nothing. And all the adults, the adults, they just roll their eyes. A few of them make jokes. But the child goes to bed that night and remembers what he has seen. Tomorrow, he says, he will see it again. Sure enough, when the morning comes and the entire warehouse is woke to the normal clamor of the morning, the child waits for the right time, grabs the now familiar chair, drags it over to the window, and he looks out again. 
And the next day, he does it again, and then again, until one day, he takes a chance. When no one is looking in the warehouse, he pokes a hole through the window, and he crawls out into the world, and his eyes are widened with the delight. He is immersed in a world that is much larger and richer and deeper and more textured than anything in the warehouse. So he stays. And he hears people telling stories. He hears them singing songs and saying little proverbs back and forth. Well, the moments turn to hours until the child realizes they're going to miss him in the warehouse. And so he crawls back through the window and goes over to clean up that mess. But he can't forget the world he has just stepped into. So the following day, he goes through it again. And then again. And the more he gets out into the wide open world, the more disenchanted he becomes with the warehouse. And the more he understands the warehouse. After all, he says, the warehouse is in the world more than the world is stuck in the warehouse. So the more time he spends in the wide open world, the more clearly he understands what's happening in the warehouse, the proportion of things, I mean. And now he can give to things the importance they have in reality. When Karl Barth first told that story, he told it in 1916. In the middle of a world war that took six million lives in four years. Bart insisted that this is the way to read the Bible as a window into the wider deeper, more mysterious, yet real world. Jesus said, what is written? How do you read it? He said it with an Old Testament scholar came to Jesus, very familiar with the meaning of the Bible. Probably forgot more than anyone in this room will ever know about the Bible. He came to Jesus 
and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked two questions of his own. What is written in the law? And how do you read it? I suspect that this was the most defining characteristic between Jesus and his contemporaries. They were easily as intelligent in the Bible as he was. They easily knew what he knew, but they read it differently. For them, the Bible was a document that you slide under the science of Bible study. You apply languages, customs, traditions, because you can learn all kinds of things through these tools. But for Jesus, it was not a document. It was a voice. They read it as though they were over it. He read it as though it were over him. So they read it to form thoughts about God. He read it to hear God speak. They read it to teach it. He read it to be formed by it. Often we answer the question, how do you read the Bible by a study in hermeneutics? But it occurred to me when I read Bart's little story that the real problem, you'll hate this, is metaphysics. The question is not, what does this verse mean? The question is, what is the scripture in the first place? It's a window between this world and the next. It's a place where heaven and earth intersect. If you pull the chair over to the window and look out it, you can see things you haven't seen before. But you'll have to leave the warehouse in order to see them. You've been trained to go into the world and find some meaning from the text that you can apply or drag back into the warehouse. But if you will just let the Bible do what it wants and follow it wherever it goes, you'll be shocked from time to time how clear it is about stuff in the warehouse. So I want you to take a moment and crawl through the window with me. And we'll walk the road to Emmaus again. That all right? I got told last week that I was taking too many steps. I learned this morning the cameramen hate this. We're almost done. This time we'll read it not as a story, as though we were outside of it, watching it, making observations, grabbing a moral that we can drag back into our life and apply. 
we will read it as a parable, as an allegory, as though we are in the story ourselves. We are one of the two. We are walking on the road on the third day, and it still feels to us like it's Friday. And a stranger comes up behind us, and he asks us what we're talking about. It's interesting that the stranger is not ahead of us, waiting for us to catch up to him. He's behind us, catching up to us. He's joining us on our road. He's not calling us onto another one. This is the journey we're on, and he catches up to us. And he says, what is it that you're talking about as you walk along? So we stop with a sad look on our face. We say, you must be the only one who doesn't know the things that have happened in the last year and a half. He says, what sort of things? We say, the pandemic, the death of George Floyd, the riots, the elections, the impeachment, the siege on the Capitol, the stimulus package, the market. And we wonder why he isn't talking about these things. And right about the time we go to close it up on him, he says, you're naive. You're so simple and uninformed. Uninformed, we say. If only you were more informed, you'd be talking about this too. And then he says, our problem is that we can't really believe even the things we say we know. So he starts talking. And he goes back and tells stories from <laughs> Moses? What's he got to do with anything? And from there he transitions through the judges into the prophets. And he's lifting sentences out from the prophets. And the more he lifts them, and when he says them, you start to think to yourself, wait a second, maybe he does know everything we're talking about. Maybe instead of talking at it, he talks alongside of it. He tells a larger story. And the more he tells the story, the more we can see where these last 18 months fit. By the end of the journey, it becomes clear what he has done. He has referred to the scriptures three times. Each time, putting the scriptures 
in between himself and you until the very end when he opens your mind so now you can understand the scriptures. And then, right when your mind is alive and your heart is on fire for the scriptures you've long avoided, he disappears. Or does he simply allow the scriptures to eclipse him? Is he always there on the other side of the window? And you thought you were alone. Suddenly, it occurs to you what is happening. You are not reading about Jesus as though he were a subject. You're not even reading for Jesus as if he were a model. You're now reading the Bible with Jesus. As if he were a guide. That's the image. I want to leave you with this morning. What is written? How do you read it? You read it with him. Tomorrow morning you wake up. You will open it again. You will look at words. But you will ask yourself. What is he going to say? You'll listen for a voice. You won't read three verses or three chapters. You won't read until you're done. You'll read until you're full. And then you'll go back and you'll read it again. And then you'll read it again. You'll saunter through the text. And you won't ask yourself, what does this mean to me? Because your life in the warehouse isn't the only thing happening. There's the bigger world. No, no. You will leave your little warehouse and you will ask yourself, what is God trying to say about anything? You will assume tomorrow morning that God never says anything that is irrelevant. He says things that are eternal. And that's how you become relevant. Not by saying things that are timely, but by saying things that are eternal at the right time. And you only hear those things in the wide open world 
of the Bible. You don't hear them anywhere else. So this week, I talked with 10, maybe, people in our church about how they read the Bible um, and hear God's voice. My assumption was that everybody does it differently, and yet there's a tremendous amount of overlap. What I discovered is that everybody does it differently. But there are patterns. The first, there's three. The first, what everyone does is they frame it. They posture themselves. They get themselves in a position to hear something God is going to say. For some people, well, for most people, it's the same chair in the same room every morning under the same light. And for some people, it's just whenever I can get it in. One person said, after the dogs are fed, I go to the basement. But they all do the same thing. They pull away. They don't read it on the way to work. They read it when they're alone. And some of them tell themselves, God is going to speak to me today. I wonder what he's going to say. Others never expect God to speak to them. They expect him to speak to somebody else through them. One of them said, I never look in the text for what it says to me. I look in the text for what it says for my wife and my kids and my friends. I said, how do you find stuff from God to you? He said, well, God would have to tell somebody else something for me. <laughs> I really? One person, okay, it was my dad. <laughs> he said, when I open the Bible, God opens his mouth. I said, just like that. He goes, just like that. <laughs> I said, duly noted. <laughs> they frame it. They put themselves in a place apart from the warehouse where they can follow Jesus wherever he goes, whether it seems relevant or not. Then there's the middle part, the part where they read it. They memorize it. When you memorize it, one of them said, it becomes portable. You can use it any time in the day. Another one said, I have a copy of the scripture in virtually every area of my life. I can always reach for it because it's always there. But most of them said, I commit to memory at least one verse that somehow summarizes everything that I have read and heard. Some people use commentaries. Some people use lectionaries. Some people use the Book of Common Prayer. Some are highly structured. Others, they get in a room, 
that is dark and light a candle and then roll up the Bible like a scroll and hold it up to their mouth as if they were Ezekiel eating the Bible. So really, how do you know what to read? Three-fourths of them said, wherever I'm at in that day, I never try to find something relevant. I assume everything is. And I just take it in. And that's something else they said. We never use it. We receive it. Some people work it like a weight machine. Memorize it. Follow the steps. Pull out the commentaries. And some people use it like a bathtub. They just sit in it and soak. I said, how do you know you're done? They said, you'll know. It sounds like experience. Some of us, myself included, make observations. <laughs> We're not after principles, after observations. I had a professor once who would hand us a text. He would say, find 30 things. We'd find them, bring it back. He'd say, that's good. Now find 20 more. We're done with that text. He'd say, find 20 more. We'd find 20 more, bring it back. He'd smile and say, now it's getting interesting. Go find 10 more. The longer one soaks in that passage, the more things become obvious to them. Finally, there is the moment where they must leave. They've immersed themselves in that word. They've memorized it. They've molded over in their mind. Some of them have sung it. Some of them have interpreted it. But there is that moment where every one of them must leave and decide what God is saying. So, how do you know it is God's voice, I asked. And what does his voice sound like? The answers went like this. Well, you obey it. And when you obey it, you will know. It's relevant when you obey it. It's not relevant until. Others said, I can tell because of where it comes from and where it's going. It comes from a heart that is at rest and it goes into the fruit of the Spirit. So it starts in good places. I can tell it. And it leads to beautiful generative things. Now I tell you all of this because for most of us in the room, we are stuck in the warehouse trying to interpret a book that was written in the world. 
trying to pull something from the Bible into our narrow little lives. But if we will turn that around and leave our warehouse and get into the world of the Bible and let it talk, if we will soak it in, memorize it, meditate on portions of it without trying to apply it, without looking for a point. The power of God's word will become evident. You will talk out loud to him tomorrow morning as you open it. You should be alone or they'll hear you.